In case you missed this, Roger Angel, arguably the best baseball writer to walk the planet, died last week at age 101. And instead of using this time to go over Angel's amazing biography, I just want to read a short passage from his 2014 New Yorker essay, The Old Man. Here I am in a conversation with some trusty friends, old friends, but actually not all that old. They're in their 60s, and we're finishing the wine and in serious converse about global warming in Nyack or Virginia Woolf, the crossdresser. There's a pause, and I chime in with a couple of sentences. The others look at me politely, then resume the talk exactly at the point where they've just left it. What? Hello? Didn't I just say something? Have I left the room? Have I experienced what neurologists call a TIA, a transient isoclemic attack? I didn't expect to take over the chat, but I did await a word or two of response. Not tonight, though. When I mention the phenomenon to anyone around my age, I get back nods and smiles. Yes, we're invisible, honored, respected, even loved, but not quite worth listening to anymore. You've had your turn, Pops. Now it's ours. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Teddy Greenstein, the former Chicago Tribune sports writer, current points bet senior editor, and the author of the excellent new book, Quarterback Dads. This is episode number 262. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Teddy. Longtime colleague, brother of SI experience. You probably didn't see this going this way. I'm going to start with something funky here. It is Wednesday, May 25th. So we're recording this one day after a deadly shooting in Texas where 19 kids were killed. And yep. you're a dad of kids. I'm a dad of kids. Even this morning, I woke up and I was like, I'm going to do a fucking podcast. Like, and like, yep. I'm going to research a book on Bojack. Like, really? I've asked this before a few, but I feel like it's just in my head right now. Like we have the same existence. So this isn't an insult. How do you justify your existence? It's a great question. And I was um, a minute away from texting you and asking you, should we delay it? And then I didn't because like, we've already delayed this a bunch. Like I was in Cabo when we were going to do it and it's been a four or five week thing. And I just selfishly wanted to do your podcast and didn't want to delay it any longer. But yeah, I mean, yesterday, I mean, a couple of things struck me. One was Chris Murphy, the senator in Connecticut. Um, what he said on the, the House floor was amazingly powerful. And then, of course, Steve Kerr, who we need to run for president because um, that guy is so smart and so passionate and cares so much more than, you know, so many of the politicians out there. So it's totally true. Um, I think we justify our existences, if I can also speak for you, um, by saying, you know, we're trying to entertain people. We're trying to inform. I'm certainly trying to do that with my book and you and I are not going to solve gun control issues. You know, I vote for who I vote for and, and we do it that way uh, to try to address the issue. But um, beyond that, there's a sense of keep your head down and do your job as well as possible and uh, carry on. You, uh, you have two daughters, Ellie and Emmy, they're 14 and 10. Did you talk to them about this? We actually didn't. Uh, previous ones we have it's always a debate now, you know, do you, do you talk to your kids about it? You don't want to scare them. You know, the little one is actually home with COVID. So she's not at school today. Um, the big one is very mature. And, you know, if we brought it up, she'd be like, yep, know about it. Fine. No big deal. 
she would be totally nonplussed. So maybe we will over the weekend, but Jeff, like at this point, they know, right? All these schools have drills and it's, it's a completely ridiculous and sad part of American society that every kid knows when he or she goes to school that you got to be on alert. It was a little hard to get up this morning and then we just kind of move on and then the next shooting happens, you know, and it's just, it's- I, I just saw a tweet with the faces of uh, 16 kids and we, we can't forget them um, and we have to keep pushing because it's unacceptable. Yeah. Well, on a uh, on a happier and lighter topic, you have a uh, you have a new book out, Quarterback Dads, and you co-wrote it with Donovan Dooley, who is a founder of Quarterback U. And uh, this is your first book. And I was actually thinking you may be least likely to have a first book. Like, it seems like you're a guy. This isn't an insult because I'm not saying books are not for everyone. And they're not, people think, oh, you have to write a book. You certainly don't have to write a book. You seem like a guy through the years who had ample opportunity to write books and ample subject matters to write books from, you know, Notre Dame yep. to golf to a million different things you've covered. And I am fascinated. Why'd you wait for this to write a book? The only other one I seriously considered writing was about a dude named Dion Thomas, who uh, I'm friends with. And he was embroiled in a scandal with Bruce Pearl, who I also happen to be friends with um, a recruiting scandal, like in the nineties with Illinois and Iowa. And I thought that could be an interesting book. This one, Jeff, came about um, just kind of by happenstance. So I'm friends with a guy who (laughs) wants to stay out of it, doesn't want his name included. But he sent me a text on July 4th of 2020. And he said, hey, um, you know, my kid is a quarterback and he's got this quarterback trainer named Donovan Dooley. And this guy's got all these wild stories about quarterback dads. He's looking for a ghostwriter. Do you know anyone? And I was like, yeah, I know somebody, me. Right. At that point, I hadn't written a book. And I likened it, Jeff, to covering the Olympics. Like, I wasn't that eager to cover the Olympics, but I wanted to have covered the Olympics at some point in my career. I wanted Mm -hmm. to have written a book, even though I know you're, you know, it ends up being prison wages and then you got to beg all your friends to to put you on their podcast and stuff. But this topic was so rich because it's football, which I love. It's um, who's next. Everybody wants to know, like, who's going to be the next star on the scene. It's youth sports. And it's the quarterback position, which is the most intriguing one. So I got after it. And first reporting I did, I knew I was on onto something because I'm at a seven-on-seven workout with J.R. Taylor and his son Trey, and there's a drone flying overhead. And I'm like, what's with the drone? And the dad says, oh, well, we've got a camera attached to it because we're accumulating um, film for our highlights package for Instagram. I'm like, it's, it's just a seven-on-seven workout. But that's how these quarterback dads are. Wait, so do you walk away from this experience or while you're in this experience, are you more, I love these people or are you more, you people are a bunch of freaking insane lunatics? Both. Um, I really, really like these people. I got a call yesterday. There's a chapter in the book about uh, Adam and Kane Archer. They live in Arkansas and the dad is calling me and he's got this colorful language and he goes, will you tell my kid he's a fucking idiot because you know, he wants to take down his Instagram posts and I'm trying to tell him for business wise, you got to leave those posts up. So you're the one who's going to have to decide that. So this is what it is now. Like the modern quarterback dad is almost as much about social media and NIL and business decisions as, Hey, make sure you step forward with your left foot and raise your arm and sort of the techniques of playing the position. But no, I have great uh, affection for all these guys. A- a- and here's one thing, like, even though they totally go overboard and are crazy, it's way better than the, the dads who don't show up, the absentee dads, 
who aren't doing anything and are abandoning their kids. These guys are the opposite of abandoning their kids. Wait, what's the what's the greatest extreme example you have of a quarterback dad? Like the one where you're just like, is this even happening? Yeah, I mean, two I'll give you is, you know, the Clemson starting quarterback, uh, if he can hold on, is DJ Uyunglele and his dad, Big Dave, tweets so relentlessly that uh, DJ blocks him on Twitter. So that might be a sign that you're a little too aggressive with social media when your son blocks you. Another one, there's a dad uh, in Detroit named Jamal Doggett, and his son is Josiah. There's a chapter in the book. And the son um, goes to games wearing a fake uh, arm tattoo sleeve, and he's got customized cleats. And uh, the dad says he's already been offered $1,000 to switch youth teams. And at this point, the kid was six years old. Uh, the dad also has a three-minute highlights package of his six-year-old, now seven-year-old son on Facebook. So these dads are, are, are pretty crazy, and yet a lot of it's paying off. We got a dad, this, this J.R. Taylor, Trey Taylor. He's already been offered by the University of Maryland. He's in the seventh grade. So some of this is really paying off. Wait, so when you interview a guy like Archie Manning about this stuff, like Archie Manning, yeah. who brought up three sons and you know, obviously had a long NFL career, and then his kids, and then there's obviously also Cooper. Can he actually relate to the 2022 dad with the drone? I would say mostly he can. Um, the, the chat with Archie was like just, I was honored to, to speak with him. Absolutely. Um, what I learned from him, Jeff, is that like, it's not a one size fits all mode of parenting. So, you know, Cooper was the, the cut up. He had his own personality, but focusing on, on Peyton and Eli, like Peyton was like the overly intense kid who's, like his teammates are getting to the little league game and he's screaming at them. You got to take extra BP and you know, you got to take extra infield practice and, and Archie's telling him, would you shut up? Would you just relax? Some kids just want to show up and play the game. And, and, and uh, Peyton is watching film as a sophomore in high school. And Archie's like, could you go see a movie? Could you get a girlfriend? So for him, he was holding him back. And then for Eli, Eli barely said a word until he was eight or 10 years old. So Archie made this special effort to spend more time with him to try to bring out his personality. So you got to tailor this to your specific kid. And to go back to your original question, one thing Archie told me was, uh, I don't know if you know about Arch Manning. Arch Manning is the number one ranked junior quarterback in America. And Archie told me that he was so proud that when we talked that Arch didn't even have a Twitter handle. <laughs> he was like the only kid ranked in the top whatever didn't have a Twitter handle. And he thought that was great. Now, it's easy if you're a Manning not to be on social media. And actually, Arch is right now. If you are in Arkansas and, and coaches are not, you know, popping through your town all the time, you do want to create some social media. But um, Archie was just delightful. Wait, so you and I and people in our shoes, we always sit here. We're all on social media. We all use social media and we all bemoan social media, right? We all do that. We, uh, I'm on Twitter. God, I hate Twitter. Blah, blah. Are you saying basically if you're a 17-year-old, 16-year-old aspiring college quarterback, not only is it advisable to be on social media, but you 100% should be on social media, that even if you don't want to be in social media, if you were a kid in 2022 and you want to get discovered, it's the number one way to get discovered? Uh, no, not when you're 16 or 17, Jeff, when you're 11. <laughs> so the deal is you create a you know, profile, you have your Instagram, you have your Twitter and some of the dads told me that like Instagram can be maybe a little more fun, a little more loosey goosey personality wise, but Twitter is like where business gets done. That's where all these coaches follow you. 
So they recommend you start having a social media, you know, having some sort of social media impact, maybe 10, 11, because then you get invited to camps. And if you get invited to camps, then coaches notice you. And if coaches notice you, then you get offers. And then it just gets the ball rolling. So once you get an offer from a Mac school, hey, maybe you get on the Big Ten radar. And then maybe Indiana or Purdue offers you. Oh, and then maybe Michigan's interested. So if you're waiting until you're 16, you're probably hosed. Wait, so I did, uh, I wrote a biography of Brett Favre. And one thing that I found really fascinating about him, and I have a book on Bo Jackson coming out. He applies to here. Like, um, oh, yeah. These guys all played a zillion different sports and it didn't matter. Like Brett Favre throughout high school yep. playing a bunch of different sports. Um, these kids today with their Instagram and their Twitter and their feeds and social media and their dads sort of dictating what they do. Is that a dead idea that you're also going to play baseball or you're also going to play hockey or whatever? That is a huge theme in the book. Do not specialize. I talked to Brady Quinn and Joel Klatt and, you know, Pat Fitzgerald and the Illinois coach, Brett Bielema and Archie May. Everybody, they all say the same thing. Play multiple sports. First of all, nobody should be throwing a football for 12 months a year. It's just not good for you. But just mentally, you, you want to play other sports. You want to have your competitive juices filled. Um, you know, go outside, play tag. Like, how good if you're going to be a future quarterback is to play tag and, and, and to learn to avoid, to avoid guys touching you because they're going to try to rip your head off eventually. Get your footwork down. Play tennis, ski, play golf. And here's one that I didn't know until I reported on the book. Don't just play baseball if you're interested in baseball, but be a middle infielder. Like everybody thinks, okay, be a pitcher. And certainly there have been great quarterbacks who were pitchers like Matt Ryan, different guys. But if you are a middle infielder, that means you're getting practice with your footwork and you have to, you know, figure out how to do all those off angle throws that Pat Mahomes and and Josh Allen and all those guys are really good at now. So play second base or shortstop, run track, play basketball. Like I, I've got a quarterback in this book, Peyton Ramsey. He's like, I played four years of high school basketball. I got my Indiana football offer after a basketball game. He's like, I would have played four years of high school baseball if I were good enough. So everybody will tell you to play a lot of sports. All right. But do the coaches mean it? All right. People say this. Oh, you should multi. But. But is there a species of college coaches and college recruiters who say it out of one side, but really want you spending all your time working on, you know what I mean? Like, is that, is it real or is it kind of BS a little bit? I mean, maybe there's some dumb shit coaches who, you know, who, who have that mentality of you should be in the weight room rather than wrestling or rather than playing baseball. Maybe that exists, but not the smart ones. The yeah. smart ones realize that, you got to diversify. You don't want to burn out. I mean, if you are, are doing too much football at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, it's not going to be good. Look at Todd Marinovich. <laughs> Todd Marinovich has a chapter in this book, and he's the ultimate example of, you know, a dad turns a kid into a science uh, experiment and only talks about football. And as a result, the kid is, you know, his growth is stunted. I was actually going to ask you about uh, Marv Marinovich and Todd. For, for younger listeners who may not know, Todd Marinovich, first round pick of the Raiders, uh, in 91, USC, famous for an overbearing dad, former NFL player as well, who basically made his kid a quarterback from basically birth. Um, and sort of Marv Marinovich became a pariah in the football world as how what not to do, what not to do. And I, yes. I wonder, number one, does he catch too much blame? And maybe he doesn't, though. And number two, <laughs> would he not stand out quite as much nowadays? as he did then. Like then he seemed like this crazy thing. Now would he be more normalized? 
That's true. He was just ahead of his time in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, I think nowadays you cannot control your kid like he did. Uh, Todd lived in abject fear of him. Um, you know, Todd was the guy who was going to a birthday party, bringing his own healthy cake. Um, he was the guy who was told you can't have uh, a Coke or you can't have a Big Mac. And um, Marv was assembling a team of experts to work on Todd. So you had your you had your nutritionist and your you know stretch guy and all these different things. Now, some of that is is sort of the modern philosophy, right? Where you have your social media guy and you have all these guys in your posse, certainly when quarterbacks get older. But no, I mean, Marv deserves to be raked over the coals pretty good because of what he did to Todd. The flip side, of course, is it's pretty impressive. If you can look at a kid in the crib and say, you're going to be a quarterback, and that kid ends up being a star college quarterback at USC and highly drafted by the Raiders. Football-wise, it was a success. Everything else-wise, what he did was absolutely horrible because poor Todd became you know, addicted, still is addicted to um, narcotics. And now Todd is a son named Barron, and he doesn't know what to do with him. He would like Barron to be a golfer, and of course, Barron wants to play quarterback and Todd's totally conflicted. We share a background. You uh, you were an intern at SI in 95. I asked you this earlier. I did not realize this. You were a free summer intern in 1995. I didn't even know. Number one, I didn't know they had free interns at SI. What is it? I know you, <laughs> you graduate from Northwestern and yep. you're from New York originally. What does that even mean? How, what does a free intern at SI mean? I practically learned to read by reading SI. I, I was the kid in high school. It was cliff notes. Uh, my verbal score was low. I never read a book, a non-sports book for pleasure in my life. And then when I was maybe 11, 12, 13, just started pouring through SIs, probably very similar to you and Riley and Russian and you know all those great writers. Um, so what I did when I was maybe 15 or 16 I had some loose connection to somebody in the PR department. And there was a woman named Kathy Griffin. And she said, sure, you can come on by and I'll give you some projects to do. So I would kind of do these PR projects. I can't even really remember what they were. And but you were then, going to the office um, at six, at 16 yeah, years old, you were going into the office earlier, I think maybe 13 or 14 and, and just kind of do random stuff. And I, I was clipping, clipping SI mentions out of newspapers or, you know, I'm sure totally useless, but uh, just like, hey, we got this kid around here. Let's, you know, let's use him. And, and yeah, I lived in Manhattan, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't a big deal to go. So then that led to, yeah, like an official unpaid internship in the PR department. How old were um, you? Uh, I think it was during high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was during. Amazing. So Roger Jackson and Art Burke, they were the, uh, I worked with a guy named Doug McCurry. And we were then just doing, like, I, here's what I know what we would do. We would send out the weekly press release summarizing the magazine to media outlets. We would fax them. So I would read the stories before, summarize them in a few sentences, and then try to get people to write about, you know, to get excited about the issue. And we would send that out. So that led to my meeting Stephanie Krasno, who is a wonderful chief of reporters. So after I got out of Northwestern, interned for a summer at the Daily News, and uh, I remember the Daily News guy saying, hey, you did a great job, but we don't have anything for you. I said, oh, that's fine. I'm starting an SI next week. I'm good. So I worked for them for a little less than two years, and then the Chicago Tribune called. Wait, so why um, why did you leave SI? I always find it interesting when young people who dream of SI, like you and I did, leave SI at a very young age, which actually I did too. Like, why did you leave? Easy call. Um, loved SI, got some bylines in. 
Um, I remember when I left, like Steve Robinson was like, why are you leaving? You could be a TV star because CNN SI was just kicking up. Yeah. But I get a call from an editor at the Chicago Tribune. And he says, we have an opening to cover Notre Dame. And at that point, I mean, Notre Dame in 1996 is like the number one college sports beat in the country. And I'm 23 years old and I love Chicago. Uh, my parents are in New York, but man, I want to break out. I want to go somewhere different. Um, and I've said I'd been here for Northwestern. So it was the easiest decision of all time. Yeah, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be a newspaper guy and I'm going to cover Notre Dame. And after two years, they say, hey, we got news for you. Now you're covering baseball. I said, OK, now I'll cover baseball for the next six years. And, you know, 24 year run at the Chicago Tribune, which um, was pretty good. You walk into the uh, 1996 Notre Dame beat. You're still a young guy. Uh, Lou Holtz is a head coach. Urban Meyer, wide receivers coach, kind of interesting. Bob Davey, <laughs> defensive coordinator. You got Jarius Jackson, a quarterback, I think. Jarius Jackson, right? Ron Paulus and then Jarius Jackson. Oh, Ron Paulus, right. Okay, do you know what you're doing? No idea what I'm doing. I have a great Urban Meyer story. Great. So I break my leg, my fibula playing softball right after I moved to Chicago. So I'm in like a cast and then, you know, all this stuff and my editor at the Tribune's giving me a hard time. Hey, we're not seeing you in the newsroom much. I'm like, I'm in fucking crutches. Let me do my work from home. But at one point, I'm in a walking boot, and they announced, hey, we're going to have um, a preseason golf media event for Notre Dame. It's going to be Lou Holtz, and all the coaches are going to be there. So even though I'm in a walking boot, I'm like, I'm not going to miss that. So I look to see who I'm assigned with. I look up, and it's like, okay, um, wide receivers coach Urban Meyer, who, of course, I've never heard of. And um, I introduced myself. Hey, uh, Teddy Greenstein for the Chicago Tribune. Nice to meet you. He goes, you're for us or against us? Oh my God. <laughs> That's the first thing Urban Meyer says. So we're playing this golf event and Lou Holtz is stationed on a par three. So he's just, you know, playing that hole over and over again. And the other groups are trying to beat him. So we hit our shot to 20 feet, lose in there at 10 feet. And I actually somehow make the 20 foot putt. And I look at Urban Meyer and, I'm telling you, Jeff, I've never seen a happier person in my life. They were all trying to stick it to him so bad because he was a tough guy to work for. He was so demanding and so driven. So that night at the awards banquet, Lou Holtz says, now I'd like to make a special announcement. The most courageous thing I've ever seen by a sports writer, Jerry Greenstein. Jerry, come on up here. <laughs> he was like pimping me or something. It turns out Lou is just terrible with names as we found out on TV. So I go up there and I get some award or something and I see Bob Davey afterwards goes, Hey Jerry, congratulations on that. Oh my God. But I tell you that, that early bond with urban Meyer helped me out because, you know, when I would see him over the years and I'd write about him at, you know, at Utah and different places, we always talked about those mid nineties days um, at Notre Dame and uh, his intensity never waned. Wait, when you see, so when you see urban Meyer, especially this last year, really get roasted and yeah. kind of publicly humiliated, like, I don't know many people who, who express a soft spot for Urban Meyer. Does that experience and that background give you a perspective that maybe makes you see it differently? It's just harder and harder to justify kind of calling him a friend. Um, you know, he just has so many colossal screw ups. And I think every single thing he did with the with the Jaguars was a complete train wreck. Um you know, kicking the kicker and just being so disrespectful and dismissive and acting like he knows it all. I, none of that sounds like him. I mean, he's a lot of things. He's nuts, but I always thought he'd be incredibly prepared. 
and treat players well. Right. So it's really disappointing because I, I, I did create some a fondness for him over the years. Now, he was the type of guy like I show up in Salt Lake City from Chicago to do a Utah story. And I see him. And the first thing he says to me is, how much time do you need? I don't know, man, 25 or 30, whatever. And, the, and then he's OK. And then we can chit chat. Yeah. Um, but I played golf with him after he was out of coaching for a sports media story. And like, he's funny. I, I mean, I really enjoyed his company, but the shit that went down in Jacksonville, man, I, 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 I texted Pete Thamel at one point. I'm like, what is this? Like, what happened to this guy? Answer. We don't know. It's bizarre. What happens to people? I, I don't understand it. I mean, he, now he's viewed as a failure when, you know, I covered all those Ohio state teams, not day to day, but as like a big 10 guy at the tribune and, his run at Ohio State was just a joke, how good it was. I mean, it was immaculate. I mean, and he developed players, and Dwayne Haskins, rest in peace, had probably the greatest quarterback one-day performance I've ever seen against Northwestern in the Big Ten title game, and Troy Smith, and everybody seemed to have a great experience at Ohio State under him, and then he gets to the NFL, and he's a just complete jackass. Yeah. Wait, I never thought of asking you this, and then it just entered my head. 1998, the Sosa McGuire chase is going crazy. Everyone's into it. We're all covering it. We're all excited. And you're covering the White Sox. Like, yes. <laughs> you're the White yes. Sox beat writer as the That's biggest right. story in sports is taking place like right outside your door. Is that a weird thing to go through? It was just so ridiculous, Jeff. I covered six years of baseball. There were three playoff teams during those six years, and I was always on the opposite. So, like, when the White Sox were good, I was covering the Cubs. and the Cubs were good, I was covering the White Sox. And um, so when I when I got the Cubs, um, Sammy Sosa was still in his full Samminess, and um, I've never covered a guy who wanted to be treated like a superstar more than him. I mean, quick quick story. I know you always ask about like uh, like contentious moments yeah. in, in clubhouses. So this one leads to it. So it's the end of uh, another like dismal Cubs season, and somebody tells me, "Hey." Uh, Check this out yesterday, man. Somebody turned down Sammy's boombox in the clubhouse, which was like an act of rebellion. So I find out who it was. It was Joe Girardi. Okay, Joe's my old Northwestern buddy. We're friendly. Hey, Joe, what, what happened? He said, hey, it's really not a big deal. I got kind of migraines. Sammy wasn't around, so I turned it down, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. I said, I'm not going to make a big deal with it. I'm just going to lead my notes with it the next day. You know, it'd be probably on page five or something. I wake up the next morning, Looney Tunes at Wrigley Field. And I remember telling to my wife, telling my wife, I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. You know, they have a day game. I got to be at Wrigley at like 930 in the morning. There's no time for people to sort of settle down and relax. And I walk in the clubhouse and uh, Sammy Sosa grabs my shoulder. What the fuck was that? <laughs> and then even Joe Girardi, I try to talk, join the scrum to talk to him. He goes, Teddy, I, I'm, I'm not talking to you today. I'm not talking to you. I said, okay. The good post to that story was, I saw Joe doing like Chicago Tribune Sports Live or some sports talk show like six months later. And he said, you know what? That ended up helping me because it, word got around baseball and it was like I was standing up to Sosa. Somebody finally stood up to this guy. And it wasn't just his music that could be played in every clubhouse. And Joe said, I remember he said, we'll always be friends. So I said, great. Wait, in your career covering sports, public persona versus reality of personality, was Sosa the biggest difference? It's such a good question, and I always I, I think I have a good answer for this. You got Sammy Sosa and Frank Thomas. Oh, yeah. And Sammy Sosa was always viewed as a great, great guy. Everybody loves Sammy. He's Mr. Fun. And behind the scenes, pretty much an asshole. 
like pretty vindictive and not a very good teammate. And you pretty much had to suck up to him. I mean, we also had some good times, but like he was the kind of guy you w- couldn't really joke with after a game. Like, you know, the official scores were all scared of him. So, you know, he hit some ball that should be, should be an E6 and they give him a base hit. So I'm joking with him afterwards. I'm like, Oh man, you uh, got, got a little break on that, on that ruling, huh? And he's like, the official score now, buddy. I'm like, so I thought he was joking. I'm like, yeah, I'm the official score. I'm the announcer. I, you know, I play the organ music. He goes, you want to hit a t- you, you want to take away a hit from me? I got no words for you. <laughs> and then he would just like storm off. He'd be so upset by this. Frank Thomas was the opposite. Frank was viewed in Chicago as a malcontent, a whiner. You know, there was this blow up with Jerry Manuel when I was covering the team and just difficult. And Frank at his core is actually a good guy. So I always thought those two were basically opposite. These two titans of Chicago baseball. Was Frank Thomas easy to cover? He was very moody and temperamental. He was the guy who would get upset with a Jay Mariotti column and say, I'm not talking to you guys. And it's like, we're the beat writers. I don't even work at the same paper as Jay Mariotti. Why are you taking this out on me? Like, be smarter than this. So one time, um, the White Sox hire Ozzie Guillen to be the manager. And Ozzie is hilarious. And in his introductory press conference, he keeps saying, oh, this kid, this kid. He's talking about Frank Thomas, who's like a 37-year-old man. And as, as a quick aside, we leave the Ozzie Guillen press conference and Doug Padilla then from the Sun-Times says, man, he was hilarious. What did he say? <laughs> because Ozzie is impossible to understand. All right, so nobody can get a hold of Frank Thomas. Ozzie used to make fun of Frank relentlessly. Frank couldn't throw because Frank said it was an old Auburn injury. And, you know, Frank is a little soft. He never slides properly into home plate. So I decide, all right, I'm going to look for Frank Thomas. You'll appreciate this. I also love Vegas. So somebody tells me, well, just like go to Vegas. He works out like at a Gold's gym in Henderson, Nevada. I'm like, perfect. So I'm going to do a story like, you know, it's the off season. It's, It's the hunt for Frank Thomas. So it's January or whatever it is. And I start going to all of Frank's favorite places, like his restaurants and is he a good tipper? And, you know, I talked to Aaron Rowan, who's a White Sox outfielder out in Las Vegas. And I go to the gym and finally we receive word that Frank has heard that, that Scott Merkin and I, we, we did this trip together, are both looking for him. So Frank avoided going to the gym today. And it's like, you weigh 265 pounds and could bench press either one of us with one of your arms. Why are you afraid of us? Why are you not going to the gym? So that sort of says something about Frank. And then I finally see him at spring training and he's all in a huff. I'm like, Frank, it was a good story. I reported that you tip 100% on meals. So I made you look good. Don't be so, don't be so upset. These guys are so thin-skinned half the time. It's actually really funny. It's kind of endearing. In an oh, it, exactly. Those two both, Sammy and Frank, super thin-skinned. That's true. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who spent today recording the audio of her upcoming July book release, First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. I gotta say, you seem pretty nervous about it. Well, my voice gets sort of weird sometimes. I gotta disagree with that. You sound great. And that's why I'd love for you, Catherine, to be the new spokesperson for Royal Retros, the sponsor of this podcast. RoyalRetros.com has all sorts of throwback hats, t-shirts, jerseys. It's the greatest. So, do we have a deal? That's sort of wonderful. Oh, uh, maybe not. You, uh, I know I'm all over this. You covered Albert Bell. And yes, when I was a baseball writer, now I didn't have your day-to-day existence. I would swoop in, swoop out, swoop in, swoop out. 
I just steer clear of Albert Bell. Albert Bell was the yes. one guy throwing Bonds, throwing McGuire, throwing any tough guy, rocker, whoever you want, who scared the living shit out of me. Albert Bell. You covered him. Um, yes. Were you guys best friends and you hung out with him for Thanksgiving and, you know, had Hanukkah latkes with him? Christmas, Hanukkah, Pesach, all the, all the big ones. Absolutely. He was incredibly intimidating, growling, never smiling. I mean, he had a second half, Jeff, where he had like, like 80 or 90 RBIs in the second half of the season. He might have had 100. It, 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 it's some number that like you can't even believe. And there was no joy in the clubhouse ever because he's just a miserable SOB. Um, but just one funny moment, like the beat writers and I, we are in the dugout at Fenway. Albert looks up at us and he goes, y'all want some quotes after BP? <laughs> Yes, we would, we would love some quotes after BP. So we're in the clubhouse and we're talking to Albert and he's great. I don't know what we talked to him about. He was friendly. He was cordial. He was great. The priceless moment is watching the players walk in to the clubhouse from BP and seeing them do double takes where Albert is like sitting down with the writers and chit-chatting with us and giving us all these stories and stuff. We all write our stories. They're glowing stories. And then the next day he's back to being who he is, a complete miserable asshole. I have no idea what got into him that day, but uh, we enjoyed it for what it was. I just want to say, I had years ago, I had Joel Sherman on this podcast and Joel told me a story yes. where um, he ran and Albert Bell, he was at the, I think Albert was with the Indians and he sees him and Albert Bell sees Joel Sherman. He's like, hey, are you lost? And he's like, I'm trying to find so-and-so. He goes, oh, you go left, you go right, you go up this way, you'll find him, it's easy. And he's like, oh, thanks, Albert. And then five minutes later, he sees Albert by his locker and he's like, well, now we're, we kind of have this little familiar relationship. <laughs> And he walks up to him and he's like, why the fuck are you standing near me? It's so strange. Albert Bell, Terry Bell was Albert's brother. Guys always like, hey, you should do a big feature on Albert. I'm like, are you kidding? Uh, he's not going to talk to me for it. I'm like, but he's like, Albert's really misunderstood. You know, like one thing, he served his country. I said, what do you mean he served his country? And he goes, he was a Boy Scout. <laughs> so, so it was just a weird vibe around the team. Like, I really liked the manager at that point, Jerry Emanuel, but the team was pretty miserable. It was like Jamie Navarro and Albert Bell and Will Cordero. There's a good guy for you. Um, so fortunately, there were some good guys, Paul Canerco, um, Mike Cameron, oh, some, yeah. some decent guys, but a, a lot of miserable people. I just want to say as a side note, I'm looking at Albert Bell's stats. It's actually kind of amazing. His name never really came up in Hall. He went, okay, in order, between 92 and 2000, his RBI totals for a season – 112, 129, 101, 126, 148, 116, 152, 117, and 103. If you're telling me this guy was not a better player than Mike Piazza, you're on crack. So I, I covered them in nine. So I had his 98 season. Yeah, and yes, that RBIs. Was 152 RBIs. And I'm telling you, the vast majority were in the second half of the season, which of course is also a criticism because he was doing it in games that, you know, nobody gave a shit about in terms of the standings, but yeah, look at it. He had an OPS of 1055 and um, he walked almost as many times as he struck out. So a brilliant hitter. So even a manager like Jerry Manuel, who's like the greatest guy, but probably knew that Albert's a, a horrible sack. Um, Jerry had a good relationship with him because he was just so grateful that Albert, how about this? He played 163 games that year. Talking about a guy who showed up every day on the field. Amazing. Would you vote for him? No, <laughs> no, I don't. I, 
I don't vote for people who are totally miserable and I don't vote for Kurt Schilling. I somehow still have a Hall of Fame vote. I'm sort of <laughs> surprised I do. Um, the steroid thing is tricky. I, I actually very much respect and understand voters who do vote for the steroid guys because it totally was a product of the era and it's impossible to know who was and who wasn't. Um, so I have no issue with that, but I'm not voting for Albert Bell or Kurt Schilling. I'm dating you 14 years here, but a column you wrote that I freaking love is called, it was in the Chicago Tribune, November 14th, 2008, Burden of Arrogance, Losses, Criticism, Piling Up for Iris's Weiss. And you wrote, the guy who once boasted he could get hoodlums and thugs and win tomorrow strolled into Jeanette High School in the spring of 2007 to recruit superstar quarterback Terrell Pryor. Jeanette coach Ray Rates knew a bit about Charlie Weiss and his reputation. Still, he was stunned by what he describes as a level of conceit he never had seen from the dozens of college coaches he had visited with over the years. Weiss certainly made a lasting impression. Arrogant as hell, Reitz said. When Reitz told Weiss that Pryor might attend USC quarterbacks camp, he remembers Weiss replying, why send him there? If he's with me for one day, he'll get good. He'll be good. Two days, he'll be great. And three days, he'll be incredible. Later, unprompted, Weiss asked uh, Jeanette coaches if they wanted to take a picture of his Super Bowl ring. I did it just to be polite and then gave the picture to one of his kids, Reitz recalled. Everyone who comes into contact with Weiss, it seems, has a story and they're rarely complimentary. Freaking love that column so much. Um, are there just moments where you are covering a sport and you just get fed up by the douchebaggery and you just say, I'm just going <laughs> to fucking go off? Yeah, I mean, Charlie Weiss really stood out in terms of the douchebaggery, like, I remember, so Notre Dame was about to hire him. So I remember going to a Patriots game in Foxborough and, you know, talking to some of the Patriots about him and, you know, glowing. And of course, what are NFL guys going to say? They're not going to rip a guy. So then I drive to a snowstorm in South Bend for the day that Charlie Weiss is introduced as the Notre Dame coach. And I think he spoke for 25 minutes before he took a question. And it's like, wow, this guy really loves himself. And like, I wanted to like him because he's a wisecracking Jersey guy. And, you know, as an East Coaster, and I kind of admired the fact that clearly he didn't play football or he didn't play past, you know, past grade school. So he was theoretically earning this based on his mind, not any of his like football playing credentials. So I, I wanted to like him, but just such an asshole. So like in his first few months, I kept hearing stories about um, alums who would show up for practice and he would basically either treat them like shit or, or, or tell them they can't be on the field. And then eventually, like we at the Tribune were slamming him so bad that the Notre Dame folks said, hey, can you come down here, you know, for a meeting? Let's try to have a fresh start. So I said, sure. So we're at this big conference room type table and Charlie is wearing like a sweatshirt. He's got his feet up like he's drinking Diet Pepsi and burping. And at one point he says about John Heisler, who is like one of the most important figures in Notre Dame sports history. This guy, a longtime SID, wrote books. He goes, what does he do around here anyway? It's like, dude, you have no class whatsoever. So any chance to slam on Charlie Weiss, I was going to do it. I'm always amazed. I mean, you've covered a lot more of them than I have. The coaches who lose perspective that at the end of the day, they're just coaching a game. You know, like I never understand the level of self-importance that comes to that position. It's a little confusing to me. Well, I don't know if Charlie Weiss thought that like the Patriots were going to start losing after he left. He certainly acted like it, but guess what? It's Belichick and Brady. Those are the two biggest reasons uh, that they win. It's not you, Charlie Weiss. And he started off strong at Notre Dame and he got this, he, he sort of 
fooled him into this huge contract extension midway through his his rookie year, his first year in their name. They lose to SC. It was one of the greatest games ever played. That was the Bush Push game. And somehow he parlays that into this massive deal. He made tons of money at Kansas and every place he's gone. And uh, he really didn't deserve it. <laughs> he, he somehow was able to get all these big contracts and did not treat people well. And like, that's the thing, like we've all covered coaches and managers who just fail because they're not good enough. But if you treat people shitty, um, that's going to come back to haunt you. And, and that's what I'm going to really kind of get out the knife sometimes. 100% agree. Um, speaking of people who treated people shitty, you were in Chicago covering sports at the same time Jay Mariotti was a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. And I was curious on Twitter, Jay Mariotti nowadays, he has, not that matters, 8,000 followers. His his tagline is accomplished columnist. That's his first thing you write. <laughs> I never knew Jay. I mean, I saw Jay. He, I never enjoyed Lupica in New York, based out of New York. I always found him Agreed. the way he treated people was a little, was more than a little shitty, was terrible. And it feels like Mariotti was he, was he, Lupica mirror, but maybe with less talent and more dickishness. I can't tell. What was the beef with Mariotti? So I actually would, would say that Jay had much more talent than Lupica. I, I thought Lupica's columns were just so basic. I was never into them. Um, I mean, I grew up reading the Daily News and New York Post and just found I, I thought Lupica's stuff was just like really, I don't know, rudimentary and not terribly interesting. Jay is a wildly talented writer. And he cares too much about his stuff. Um, you know, he's the kind of guy who's rewriting his column at one thirty in the morning and his desk is like, can you give us, you know, give, give us your column? Anyway, now that's probably the nicest stuff I'll ever say about him. And I'm honestly reluctant to even talk about him because he's one of these guys, like I'll end up getting a nasty DM from him or however he wants to try to reach out. Like what's cool about what's happened to Mariotti is when he really wanted to insult an athlete or a coach, he wouldn't say they suck. He would say they're insignificant. They don't matter. And now Jay Mariotti is insignificant and doesn't matter. And like, he would just hammer athletes and coaches. Like if they were, if they were jaywalking or just some, you know, let's say even they got a DUI, but then like months later they were cleared of that. So maybe they were actually innocent of it. He would still be crushing them and assuming they're guilty. So it's like the ultimate comeuppance that he ends up losing his career over an issue where he pleaded no contest to hitting a woman. Right. So um, the less Jay Mariotti in my life, the better, but an incredibly talented, hardworking writer, that much I will acknowledge. What do you feel like, I mean, you and I were about the same age. We've been in the business for the same amount of time. I feel like a few things you learn as you do this. Number one, you're never going to go wrong treating people nicely. And that doesn't mean you can't okay. criticize people when you write. But I'm saying in your day-to-day -day existence, you're never going to go wrong helping people. If we all have impulses where we feel threatened by someone or we think, oh, that guy's, you know, like I've certainly gotten jealous of other people's book success, right? In my career. And then I, I really try to stop myself and say like, why are you, why are you bemoaning someone else's success? That person's working just as hard as you are. I just think you can't go wrong being a decent person in this business. You know, I'd like to think I absolutely am um, supportive of colleagues. You know, it's interesting when you do write a book, and you've got some friends who are, what can I do? Let me write an Amazon review. You know, let me buy 10 copies of your book. Let me do whatever. I'm so excited for you. And you certainly have a lot of friends who you don't hear from and are surprised you don't hear from them. And you kind of wonder. Um, so this has been kind of an interesting barometer for people in terms of like how much they want to step up and support. But um, yeah, 
be a great guy, be a great person, always treat people well. Like Jeff and my jobs now, like one, I'm selling books and two, you know, I work for PointsBet and part of it is I'm signing up clients to be betters. So I'm working the network that I've developed for, you know, 20 something years in Chicago and Illinois. So when I hopefully treated somebody well at a golf course or at a stadium or a young writer who says, Hey, I, I met you so-and-so, you know, never know when um, it's going to be a situation where I can say, Hey, do you have a points bet account? Cause I'd love to sign you up. Right. All right. I, I want to get to that actually in full transparency. I have never gambled on a game in my life. I don't find, this is no beef. I don't find gambling particularly interesting to me. I don't, it doesn't call me. And I feel like everywhere I turn these days, Gambling, 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 gambling. It's become the thing. It became sort of nationally accepted. And here we are. You are a senior editor at Points Bet. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> it's a great question. So Points Bet is an online sports book. We compete with DraftKings and FanDuel and Caesars and BetMGM. And we have a good presence in Illinois. Um, we're also partners with NBC, which leads me to be on Golf Channel pretty much every week. Um and, um, you know, some of our, our, our talent guys who are on like the you know Sunday night shows and stuff and Peacock and all this and that. So uh, half my job is content. So one thing I do is I write and edit our weekly newsletter, which we call The Hustle, because I think it connotes, you know, it's a quick read and side hustle. A lot of people view sports betting ads. Another thing I do is I, you know, create golf bets. I go on shows and podcasts and I talk about our offerings. So certainly the week of the PGA Championship or U.S. Open, I'm talking about, hey, we've got a boost on um, Tiger Woods to do this and that, or, hey, I, I created a fun bet where, you know, are the Phoenix Suns going to win and Tony Finau going to finish in the top 20? So for me, I love all this stuff, Jeff. Like, I was the kid in, in high school who was running our NFL pool. And when I was at the Tribune, I was writing a column um, predicting every Big Ten football game against the spread. Like, there's so many great sports stories, and there are also a lot of great sports betting stories out there, the bad beats. You know, we had a guy who bet Justin Thomas at 250 to one on Sunday to win the PGA championship and he won $50,000. So a lot of this is in uh, Darren Ravel's feed that you will either enjoy or perhaps uh, ignore. Um, so it's a growing space. It was, it was an easy decision to leave the tribune. I love talking about sports betting and um, it's a cool company to work for. I ask you just being totally naive about this. Yeah. Is there a concern in this world about obviously the addictive nature of gambling and people like, because yep. it does seem like it's exploding and gambling is exploding and sports betting is just blown up. Is there a genuine worry about people getting too deep in? Yeah, I'd say it's like anything else. It's like alcohol. You have a percentage of people who are going to get way too far in it and there it's going to negatively affect their life and you have to get it under control. So I'd say a couple things about that. One, we really do push responsible gaming in every way. So for example, like if anybody ever wants to opt out, there's a way to opt out for a week, a month or forever. It's called like self-excluding and we cannot contact them during that time. So hopefully people, if they recognize they have a problem, they are deleting our app and we, you know, they'll never hear from us again. But I would say this, like there is already a ton of sports betting out there even before the Supreme Court essentially legalized this. But it was taking place with bookies. And if you're betting with a bookie, it's really dangerous because you're betting on credit. You're betting with money you don't have. And then if you lose, you lose your house or you get your ass kicked or whatever happens with bookies. So 
with, with sites like PointsBet, you have to fund it before you are betting. So it's not money that you don't have. And we do have a lot of mechanisms to sort of to, to remind people, like take a break. If you've been on the site too long, you know, keep, only bet what you can afford to lose. That's what we're always pushing. Like this should be viewed as a form of entertainment. Don't think it's a side job where you're going to make a whole bunch of money. View it as, hey, I'm going to watch the Mavs um, Warriors game. And it's more fun for me if I have 20 bucks on the Mavs or if I have 25 bucks on Steph Curry to score 25 and a half points or more. What's the worst bet you ever made in your life? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, last night was a, a really stupid one. It was a three-leg parlay that I got from a friend he recommended. So it was the Dallas money line. It was the Mavs. Then it was the over in the Phillies game. Bryce Harper bailed us out uh, by hitting a three-run bomb. And instead of taking the Yankees just to win the game, uh, which is called the money line, there's a run line where you're betting on the Yankees minus one and a half runs. And I got greedy and the Yankees won, but by one run. So I, I, I blew my parlay because I got greedy and should have just bet them on to win the game. Exactly. $50 I'll never see again. You so, and I both, um, both raised Jets fans. Should I, um, I'm thinking of betting everything I own on the Jets winning the Super Bowl this year. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, we, we, it's always, we have a great team. We have a lot of skill guys. Yeah. I, I think I will place a nice bet on the, the Jets over under win total. See, this is a good way for you who has no interest in betting. If you want to dip your toe in a little bit, because if you bet a season long win total, you know, let's say you bet 20 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever, you get like 18 weeks of, of joy out of it potentially, or perhaps misery. So I think the Jets over under win total is five or five and a half. Yeah. So I think that might be a good play. I will tell you something. And I don't, I don't know if I'm a minority here. Like I don't care who wins Boston, Miami, and I don't care who wins Dallas golden state. Right. Um, in fact, I don't even really care how the Jets do this year. Right. But I do <laughs> like sitting down and watching games and not having a care in the world. And I don't know if that's rare, actually. Like, I like just watching a game. I love watching Steph Curry play basketball. And there's something for me personally where I just dig watching a game. You know what I mean? And, like, not having yeah. a pressure with not caring. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm rare in this kind of world. You know? That's kind of – for me, that's probably one in a hundred. So when I'm watching a golf tournament, I have a lot of bets on these golf tournaments. When I'm watching NBA playoff games or, like, it's very – if I'm going to the White Sox game tonight, I'll definitely throw stuff down. There is occasionally a time I'm watching myself, maybe the Olympics, although there wasn't even a lot of great Olympics. There's some sporting event I'm watching. Maybe it's women's college volleyball. And I'm like, they are just great athletes. I love watching volleyball. And clearly I have no bet on this and we'll just enjoy it for the sake of the sport. Right. Um, you had a column run November 5th, 2016. It is the only column I believe that you wrote hanging in your office, brief glimpse of history in Wrigleyville worth weight. And, uh, you led it with grown men stood in trees uh, and watched from rooftops. Little kids camped out on window ledges, the hoods of cars or parents' shoulders. Everyone wanted a peak of history. The day felt more like early May than early November. Sunshine beaming between buildings as the temperatures creeped towards 60 degrees. The friendly mob of people saying, go Cubs, go and take me out to the ball game." as they waited and waited and waited for the trolleys to go past along uh, Addison Street. One man in the trees was smoking. Another was clutching a Bud Light. They were at least 15 feet off the ground. Some fans shook their heads, but Kate Nelson of Evanston seemed impressed. That's hardcore dedication. 
We were at three, uh, 3611 North Wilson Avenue, close enough to see a Wrigley Field light tower. Um, Yvette Pena came with her kids, saying of her Cub fandom, we were born into it. I'm a transplant, a native New Yorker whose mood used to surge and plummet based on a Yankees result. A market researcher named Michael could relate. He's a Braves fan from Atlanta. When he spotted my eight-year-old uh, L on a window ledge, he quipped, how much for that seat up there? Michael gave me his last name and then asked me not to use it. Yup, he was playing hooky. It's this beautiful, beautiful column in the aftermath of the Cubs winning the World Series. Uh, why is that hanging on your wall? Yeah, so I think it's the only story where uh, I, I, I snuck in the kids. I mentioned the kids, uh, Al and Emmy. And it was just an amazing day. Um, it was actually um, Emmy's birthday was right around then. They randomly had a day off from school. It was November. The Cubs had just won. It was 60-something degrees out. And it was just before the election. <laughs> so times were still good, Jeff. Um, and, yeah, I just, you know, hey, when you have an opportunity to write about your kids, uh, you do it. Kind of like how I always used to say, I have a Hall of Fame vote and I'm voting for Don Mattingly every year. Because if you have a Hall of Fame vote and you're not voting for your favorite all-time player, then what's the point? So that was a fun column to read. I'm not sure my kids have ever read it. They probably take about as much interest in my work <laughs> as yours do. In yours. Although I know they love the movie premiere. But uh, indeed, that's the only one up on, the, on my wall. Well, uh, Teddy, uh, congrats on the book. I appreciate you doing this. You've had a great career. You've had just a really fascinating and fun and interesting and unique career. And uh, from one pathetic, beaten down Jet fan to another, you know, <laughs> this is the year. This could be the year. This, this could be the year. This is this is one of my favorite two podcasts, Jeff. This and what's now called College Football Inquirer. So I've been wanting you to ask me to do it forever. I'm glad you did. Love the podcast. Love what you do for writers. I used your advice a ton when I was writing quarterback dads and doing all the marketing and all that kind of stuff that goes with it, man. So thank you for what you do. I want to thank today's guest, Teddy Greenstein, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Teddy on Twitter at Teddy Greenstein and buy quarterback dads wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a sweet review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me and remember, keep riding.